All right, our teaching tonight, I'm actually going to take from two different scripture locations, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 to 33, and then also where we specifically find the first commandment, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. And here we read first from 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. And I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and wants you to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then we read from Exodus 20, again, the specific portion of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. And Luther's explanation then of the first commandment is he says, what does this mean? We are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We're going to break our teaching tonight into the following points. Very simple. We're going to look at both of the scripture texts that I just read and peel those apart to figure out uh, what is the scriptural basis for idolatry. I'm going to give a deeper explanation of idolatry where we get to the whys and hows of idolatry because you'll hear me say this a couple of times. I don't think there's a better thing on earth for better giving you vocabulary for why you think the way you think, why you feel the way you feel, and why you do what you do, than the scripture's vocabulary attached to idolatry, okay? I'm going to give you four kind of secrets or nuances about idolatry that you might not have thought about before. Finally, we're going to look at how the true God defeats our false gods. So this is the gospel of this text. So the scripture, uh, the explanation uh, broadly of idolatry and how the true God defeats our false gods. First of all, the scripture portions, we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 10. A major issue for the church in Corinth is the potential to abuse their freedoms. So navigating Christian freedom was a big issue and how in their context, how it affected them is oftentimes, this comes up several points in Corinthians, meat that is sacrificed to idols. Are we allowed to eat that or not? See, there's some things in life where morals are just very clearly black and white and it's very clearly and obviously right and wrong. And there's other things in life that are much grayer and require a certain amount of guidance and meditation. And even for that matter, it depends on motivation. So for instance, the believers in Corinth knew full well it would have been sinful to go to a pagan temple, like the temple, popular temples in Corinth, the temple of Poseidon or the temple of Apollo or the temple of Aphrodite, and participate in the worship practices to those pagan gods. So uh, there, was, there was worship, there was sometimes uh, sexual forms of worship attached to that, but there were also pagan festivals where they ate meat that was sacrificed to those gods. 
they knew it was wrong to do that. Now, was it a temptation? I bet it probably was. For their flesh, the more sinful portions of that style of worship, that was probably an issue. Also, in the ancient world, people didn't eat a whole lot of meat. So if, you know, Poseidon's is having a barbecue tonight and it's wafting over to your uh, backyard, it probably is a little bit tempting. But nonetheless, they knew it was wrong. They knew overtly that that would be wrong. But the trickier issue was the extra meat that was sacrificed to the God at that temple and was then a surplus that was taken to the marketplace and sold to the people of the city. In other words, it had been involved in a pagan ritual, but was not currently being involved in pagan rituals. Was it okay for believers to eat that? The Apostle Paul's answer is yes. That's fine. Why? Because he says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's quoting from Psalm 24. It's right there in verse 26. And he's saying, look, everything ultimately on this planet that is good comes from God. And therefore, you can take that home. You can eat it in glorifying God and in gratitude in your heart. And absolutely, that's a good thing. The conversation doesn't end there, though. It's not quite that easy. Because life has got lots of circumstances. And the one that he gives is, okay, let's say that another believer, maybe a new convert to Christianity, invites you over to their house for a meal. And they say, this food was sacrificed to a pagan idol. What if you, now are you, again, are you free to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Yes, you can do that to the glory of God. But if when you eat it this time, it communicates to that individual that Jesus is great, but he's one God amongst many gods. And there's no, you know, universal truth. There's no absolute truth. There's no singular pathway to salvation. Uh, The whole I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If it clouds that, and it absolutely did at times, it had the potential to do that. Then what Paul says at that moment is don't eat. Specifically, what he says here is for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of their conscience, don't eat. And the clinching statement in all of this, and probably the most pertinent to our discussion tonight, is, is this next phrase. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Here's the big idea. It's entirely possible to do something that is otherwise morally neutral or even civically good. But to do it with a self-centered attitude at which point it actually becomes sinful. See, you can eat the meat that's inherently good, that's sacrificed to idols, but if you do it, if you do it only for your own desire, without regard for God and without regard for your fellow man, then you're sinning. Because while it's inherently good, see, what is idolatry? Idolatry is putting your own desires ahead of God and God's desires. And interestingly, at that moment, even though you're not at the pagan festival, you're committing idolatry because you've put your own desires ahead of God's will, which is to love God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. Every day, you and I and all believers have thousands of choices that we have to make. Where the real issue of it is not whether or not we're successful, it's not whether or not we're happy, it's whether or not we're seeking first God and the glory and benefit of others ahead of self. See, idolatry is primarily an issue of priority. Which brings us to the second text, Exodus 20. Something I got to say now, and I'm probably going to have to repeat at some point throughout the course of this series, is in part because we're fortunate enough, a lot of people here come from different faith backgrounds, including different like Christian faith backgrounds. The reason it gets confusing when you come to the Ten Commandments is because different faith groups number them differently. 
And I don't want you to get completely thrown off by that tonight. So the Ten Commandments are recorded for us both in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, technically speaking, they're not actually called the commandments. The Bible calls them the ten words. In Hebrew, it's the Asara Hadabrot, and in Greek, it's the Decalogos, which they both just basically mean the ten words. The weird thing about them is they're never actually numbered. So there's ten of them in there somewhere, but they're not actually given a number to it. There's, there's like 14 different verbs that have exhortations attached to it or something like that, but different groups historically have numbered them a little bit differently. Obviously, we are a Lutheran church. Luther numbered them according to the way St. Augustine of Hippo numbered them, maybe the most important early church father. And St. Augustine said verses 4 through 6 are fundamentally an explanation of verse 3, and therefore those all go together. What that means is some of you are going to look at what we're perceiving tonight, and you're going to say, why are you squishing the first commandment and the second commandment about making a graven image? Why are you pushing those things together? Well, here's why. Take comfort in the fact that all the different groups that honor the Ten Commandments believe that all of it is the will of God. So we're not going to skip any of it, but we're going to look at what we will call number one tonight. Some of you might know them as number one and number two. All right. Two issues and nuances that I want to bring up from this text. The first is that idolatry is primarily, we touched on this, about priority. If when you guys walked in tonight, I did a little poll and said, okay, do you know what the first commandment is? Some of you have been able to give it to me, some of you not. That's okay, we're all at different spots. But those of you who believed you were able to give me the first commandment, I guarantee the majority of you would have said, you shall have no other gods. That's not quite right. It's not quite right. Why? Because it specifically says, it clearly says in the text, you shall have no other gods before me. There's a preposition with a first person suffix in there. All of the more formal translations, all of the specific formal equivalence translations have the word in translation before me. Other translations sometimes have besides me or just drop that part off altogether. You shall have no other gods. You should have the before me there because this is an issue of priority. Even if you don't translate it that way, you can get it from context. In other words, what's being told here is idolatry. If you don't get that, the thing that you don't get is what idolatry is primarily about. Idolatry is not about bowing down to funny little statues. It's about promoting something or someone that is good in your life to the position of God and ultimate in your life. It's looking to created things and promoting them to give you what only your creator God can give you. Meaning and purpose and hope and security and value and worth uh, and all that other good stuff that every human being is actually looking for. Let me give you an illustration of this. If you promote other things above other important relationships, it destroys those relationships. And the same thing can happen with God. For instance, in marriage, I remember reading an article a number of years ago where a Christian counselor said when he went into counseling, he assumed that the main reason why marriages would dissolve was because somebody loved a bad thing or did a bad thing. So infidelity or uh, alcohol abuse or drugs or, and absolutely, if those things enter into a marriage, they can torpedo a marriage, right? What he said, I came to find, however, is that the primary thing that leads to the dissolving of a marriage is not people doing bad things, but loving other good things more than the marriage, prioritizing those other things more than the marriage. So for instance, when you're married, if the kids become more important to you than the marriage, that will destroy the marriage. If one or the other spouse's career becomes more important to you than the marriage, that destroys the marriage. If your extended family's opinions about what we should be doing with our lives and, our, and, and that kind of meddling is more important than the marriage, that destroys the marriage. Why? It's not because those things are inherently wrong. They're inherently good. 
It's that the very nature of marriage is that you cannot have something else promoted above it other than God in order for it to work. Now, here's how this relates to idolatry. What is idolatry? We are the bride of Christ. If you promote anything that is otherwise good in your life ahead of God, it will absolutely destroy your marriage to God. See that? Idolatry is primarily an issue of priority. It's also an issue of production. And what I mean by that is you get to actually make your gods. Specifically what it says here in verse 4, very interesting phrase, you shall not make for yourself. It doesn't just say you shall not worship another god. It says you shall not make for yourself anything, any image in the form of, and it goes on to describe different like created things. Um, again, the modern person will say, well, you know, as long as I haven't silversmithed any funny little statues out there, I haven't committed idolatry, completely missing the point of what ancient people understood about idolatry. It goes back to, like I said earlier in our first lesson, I don't think it's said anywhere better than in Ezekiel 14, where we read, these men set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. You see, they set them up in their hearts. You get to choose. You get to decide. You get to determine what you're going to serve in life and what you're going to live for in life. Joshua said to the Israelites before they entered into the promised lands, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether it's the priorities of your parents, whether it's the priorities of the culture in which you currently live, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Whatever you promote to the throne position of your heart, functionally, that's your God. Now, let me just close it by giving Luther's explanation from the large catechism here. There's my favorite portion of it where he says everything that we've been talking about. He says, true worship and service of God takes place when your heart directs all its trust and confidence only toward God and does not let itself be torn away from him. It consists in risking everything on earth for him and abandoning it all for his sake. You can easily judge how in contrast to this, the world practices Nothing but false worship and idolatry. There has never been a people so wicked that it did not institute and practice some sort of worship. You know what Luther would say about secular society today? Do you think he would say we're secular? No. He'd say we're just as religious as any people group has ever been. We're just worshiping other things. The problem with us is we're delusional to the fact that we're worshiping our secular society. Everyone has set up for himself some particular God to which he looks for benefits and help and comfort. Idolatry does not consist simply in the setting up of an image and worshiping it. It takes place primarily in the heart, which looks elsewhere than to the one God, seeks help and comfort in created things, in saints and in devils. All right. So that's the scriptural basis, the theological basis for the concept of idolatry. What I want to get to now is, uh, before, before I jump in here, what I want to say is I'm going to give you four things that I believe are, secrets probably isn't the right word, nuances in understanding idolatry because, again, there is not a single thing on this planet that can help you, that you can study, that will help you understand my hopes and dreams, my fears and anxieties, the way I think, I feel, and I behave better than the biblical concept of idolatry. There's not a single thing that you can study that helps you understand you better than that. Okay? So here's some nuances that you maybe haven't thought of or understood before. First of all, the motive of idolatry. Why do people commit idolatry? It's a desire for control. You go back to the Garden of Eden and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just an offer that Satan made her. There was a warning. He was warning her against something that, you know, falsely he thought 
uh, she thought would be bad. He basically said, if you submit to God and prioritize God, he's going to have all the fun and you are going to miss out. Specifically, what he says there in verse 5 of Genesis 3 is, for God knows, he knows, he knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes are going to be opened, you will be like God and you will know good and evil. He knows your eyes are going to get opened and you're going to see, when you eat, you're going to see he's been duping you this entire time. Don't be a fool. You know what? Deep down, you and I and every human being inherited that. We inherited that original sin where we're cynical about God and we just don't trust the guy. And so we think if we worship something or someone other than the true God, that is going to give us a level of control over our own life. That if we submit to God, we won't have. Because if I submit to God, guess what? He gets to speak into my life. He gets to speak into who I marry. He gets to speak into how I manage my money. He gets to speak into how I conduct my relationships. He gets to speak into my sexuality. He gets to speak, he gets to call the shots in my life. That's terrifying for us in some ways. And therefore, if I get to, if I just ignore him, pretend like he doesn't exist, then I get to create whatever God I want in my own life. And that feels a lot safer for my own happiness. Okay, so idolatry is a control issue. Secondly, idolatry, there's a necessity of idolatry. Why? Because it's the inevitability of worship. A lot of you have heard me say this before. Every human being worships. You can't not worship. You say, well, not everybody goes to church. That's too narrow of a definition of worship. You got to get rid of that definition of just, that's corporate worship. That's not just worship. Cats meow and dogs bark and fish swim and stars shine and humans worship. That's what we're created to do. You can't not do it. The only thing that you get some agency in is choosing who or what you will worship. And therefore, every human being is ascribing uh, disproportionate value to something in their life, and that thing has a level of control over them. This is self-evident in some ways. Does everybody sacrifice for something? Yes. Does everybody sing the praises of something? Yes. Does everybody listen to the prophets of something or someone? Yes. Does everybody sometimes, you know, wear the sacred garments or appear in the temple of a certain thing that they deem good? Yes. Does everybody, if they don't get what they think they really need other than God to be happy, do they feel like they're being cursed by that thing? Yes. What is that? That's idolatry. So let's just give you a practical example and make it less abstract. Let's say physical beauty is an idol to you. If you want physical beauty, do you have to sacrifice? You sacrifice calories. You sacrifice time and energy at the gym. You sacrifice a bunch of money to whatever, uh, fashion and makeup and stylists and maybe surgeons and wh whatever else. Do you listen to any prophets? Oh, yeah. You got to listen to the designers and the influencers and uh, whoever else out there. You got, do you have to go certain places? You got to go to the places and do what you got to do to serve that God. Now, oh, pastor, you're saying physical beauty is wrong. No. Physical beauty isn't, isn't wrong in and of itself. It's an issue of priority. If it becomes the ultimate thing in your life, if it becomes a master that you have to serve, that's a God. See, that's a God. And everybody, it could be any good thing. I mean, you can argue from a physical beauty standpoint, you could, number one, say it's a gift from God. Number two, if uh, the more you do things like steward things like physical health, it can contribute towards things like physical beauty. It's not wrong in and of itself. It's when your heart grabs a hold of it and tries to squeeze out of it what only God himself can give you. And that can be anything. 
It can be sports, it can be career, it can be family and kids, it can be your personal freedom and autonomy. Uh, it can be the approval of your parents. It can be the approval of the world. Um, it can be anything, but it always requires worship. Whatever it is, it always requires worship. And by the way, if you're still wondering and investigating what your personal pet idols are, there's probably four different things that I generally tend to give people that look at these things and they'll point in the exact direction. Uh, the four things would be this. One, look at your bank account. Two, look at your schedule. Three, look at what you're counting in life. And four, look at where your daydreams are going. Okay? You catch what those four were? One, in fact, if you don't want to determine what your idols are and you say, Pastor Hein, will you help me figure out what my idols are? I'm going to ask you for four things. Say, give me your bank receipts. Give me your Outlook calendar. Tell me what you count in life. Because some people count GPAs and some people count dollars and cents and some people count pounds on a scale. And so, Tell me what you count. And tell me what you think about when you wake up in the morning, what you think about when you go to bed at night, and what you think about when you're supposed to be working during the day and your mind is drifting. Those things will absolutely point to you to what has the capacity for idolatrous power in your life. Okay? One other major thing in here that I gotta, I gotta just highlight under this point. What commandments you break. Now, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with temptation. And, but we don't all commit the exact same sins all the time. From person to person, we struggle with different sins. What commands are you breaking? And here's why this is so important. That will point you to your gods too. Because, I didn't really understand this until my adult life, I don't think. But the commandments are set up in such a way so that they're bookended beautifully. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The last of the commandments, some of you know, says, you shall not covet. Well, what is coveting? Coveting is like desiring something as though it were a god in your life. So you shall have no other gods, including don't desire anything in your life or pursue it as though it is a god. And if you pursue something that's not god as though it's a god, you're going to worship your false god by breaking all the real god's commandments in between. Let me just give you a couple examples of how this works. Because this could be a whole thing in and of itself. If you have a false God of pleasure or comfort, I can nearly guarantee you're going to break the real God's sixth commandment about sexual immorality. If you have a false God about personal freedom and autonomy and nobody gets to tell me what to do, I get to live the way I want to live, I can nearly guarantee you're going to break the real God's fourth commandment about honoring your authorities. If you have a false God of money and wealth and control and prosperity in your life, I can nearly guarantee that you're going to break the real God's seventh commandment about dishonest business practices and theft and being stingy and not being as generous as you should. If you have a false God of the approval of other people, I can guarantee you're going to break the real God's eighth commandment about bearing false witness and slandering and tearing other people down with your words. Why? Because you want to look better by comparison. You will serve, you will worship your false gods by breaking the real God's commandments. So look at the temptations that you uniquely struggle with and that will point you directly at those idols. They are in your heart. They're invisible. They are 100% there. And by the way, what you do with them is you can't just compartmentalize them and you can't just neatly take them and put them on a shelf and hope they'll go away. You have to take them outside and destroy them. Okay? That's the only way to overcome these thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and idolatry. Third thing, got to keep moving. The delusion of idolatry. Satan convinces us an idol is our savior. In other words, an idol isn't just a false god. An idol is a pseudo-savior. It's the thing that you look to in times of crisis in life that you think, this is, this is the thing that's going to rescue me. This is the thing that's going to defend me and justify me. Isaiah says this really well in chapter 44. 
when he says he makes a God his idol, uh, he bows down to it and worships it, he prays to it and says, save me. Please, whatever this thing is that's not the true God, save me, you're my God. We haven't talked yet about the idol of like religion and morality, but I, I used to think primarily people who grew up in very religious homes struggled with this. I come, I've come to think everybody struggles with this to some extent. When I can tell somebody has an idol of religion or morality is very often when they come to me and maybe we're doing pastoral counseling and they'll say something along the lines of, you know, I don't get it. I'm kind of angry because I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And what I have to do at that time, I thought I was doing what God wanted me to do, but I'm not getting the results that I think I should get. What I have to tell them very gently and patiently at that time is, let me just get this straight. You thought because I went to church, because I said my prayers, because I have relatively right doctrine, because I'm relatively more moral than other people in society around me, God owes me. Now, nobody ever says God owes me because they know not to say that. But I'm reading between the lines and I'm saying, here's what you just said, even though you didn't say that. Now, first of all, the idea that God would somehow have indebtedness towards, a holy God would be indebted to a sinful human being, that's preposterous. But what that also does is it exposes to you, look, if you were obeying God with the specific intent that he would bless you with the thing that you wanted, you weren't actually obeying God because you loved God. You were trying to use God to get to the thing that your heart really loved that you thought was your, that you think is your real savior in life. You see that? Idols are not just false gods. Idols are also false saviors. Finally, here's the last one. Uh, the slavery of idolatry. You think that you're choosing it until you realize you can't say no to it anymore. The Apostle Paul says something really interesting in Romans 1, where he talks about how the pagans, he gave them over to their desires and he gave them over to their idols. And it, it's just, something about idolatry works very much like addictive, the addictive drug cycle. Any of you, if you've ever had a family member or a friend who is addicted to drugs or whatever else, and you tried to speak into their life and they fall again and again and again and again, at some point in time, you sort of feel like I have to give them over to this. Like, because I, I can't do the work for them. You know? And it says God gave the pagans over to their idolatry. How does addictiveness work? You continue to repeatedly choose something because you think you need it in order to be happy. However, you, as you continue to choose it, there's diminishing returns. So you have to continue to up the amount that you are choosing to give you the same state of euphoria. And at some point in time along the way, inevitably, what you will find is you thought you were choosing it the entire time until you realize that you can't not choose it anymore. Because it's got power over you and it's enslaving you and it's at that point that it can kill you. It's the old adage, do you know how to tell uh, an alcoholic? You can't tell an alcoholic by adding another round of drinks to the table and seeing who gets drunk. You can tell an alcoholic when you take the drinks away and see who gets most upset. Who sweats? Who's got the shakes? That person's enslaved. You say, okay, well, I don't have alcoholism. Let me ask you this. Do you, have, do you struggle with drive? It's one thing to want to be successful. It's an entirely different thing to not be able to look yourself in the mirror if you're not successful, to hate yourself. You really want a boyfriend or girlfriend or a significant other and somebody to share your life with. It's, that's a totally healthy, natural desire. If you need it, you're going to start breaking the real God's commands in order to shortcut your ways to get it, right? 
You think you're choosing it until you realize that it actually has a power and a force over you. That's idolatry. Okay, that's not a comprehensive list. It's just a kind of list. And for time's sake, we're going to stop there. And in part, I feel okay doing this because uh, every command after this is about idolatry. It's just different manifestations of it. Remember, this is the overarching command. So we'll have time to come back to a lot of this, but I want to get to the final point. How the true God defeats our false gods. And I want to start just with the summary of what we've talked about. Uh, The summary is this. We said that the first commandment is not one among ten. It is the overarching command of God. And we break other commands of God in order to serve our idols. Secondly, I said idolatry is not primarily about funny little statues. Idolatry is primarily about our priorities that we form in our hearts, promoting good things into a God position, looking to created things to give us what only God himself can actually give us. Thirdly, an idolatrous person who makes a God. An idol is when you try to make an image into a God that serves you. A follower of Christ is somebody who asks God to make them more into the image of Jesus Christ. One other thing I want to say here before we close is, In the course of this, in the course of idolatry, and you've heard me talk a lot about this before, uh, it's perfectly fine to talk about things like anxiety and depression and addiction and codependency and self-esteem and self-image. and all Those are good things. And and for for that matter, I, I think Christians need to talk about them more. What I need any believer here to acknowledge, however, is those things aren't the bottom. You say, well, okay, other things are symptoms of those things. That might be, but those things themselves are symptoms of a deeper human condition. Those things are not the absolute bottom. And therefore, we need to understand that underneath all of that actually is idolatry. People can die from a misdiagnosis, a superficial misdiagnosis. The biblical diagnosis is that the cause underneath all human pathology is our idolatry. And if you don't know that, you're never going to be able to rise beyond those. Now, final part. If uh, we can acknowledge that we struggle with idolatry, why? What's the motivation? Why would we choose Jesus above the other gods of life? Whether it's money or romantic relationship or family or career or whatever else. Why is Jesus a better God than the other gods that we're capable of making in the world? And again, I understand that I'm talking to people that everybody in here would say that. And my response to that is, well, why don't our lives look different then? Because while we acknowledge it, because we just all said the creed a couple minutes ago, (laughs) when we look to the things that we count, we look to our bank accounts and we look to our schedules and we look to our daydreams and we look to our fantasy life, we realize that we're not just serving Jesus Christ alone. Why not? Because Lord, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Why is Jesus a better God than the other potential gods of the world? Uh, Tim Keller's classic famous line about idolatry is this. Jesus is the only God that if you get him, he'll actually satisfy you. And if you fail him, he'll forgive you. No other God works like that. He's the only God, if you get him, he'll satisfy you. But if you fail him, he'll forgive you. Just look at a God like money. If money is your God, if you get it, will it satisfy you? You know what's super interesting is you can have a God of money if you have a ton of it or if you have none of it. But you think it's going to give you what God can give you. And both the person who has a ton and the person who has none, if they have a God of money, they always want more. Because it doesn't actually satisfy you. And actually, if you fail it, oh my goodness, if you squander it or lose it or make a bad decision with it, it will, that God will curse you with anxiety and sleeplessness and regret. Jesus is the only God that if you get him, he'll actually satisfy you. But if you fail him, 
he'll forgive you. He's also, interestingly enough, as the God-man, he's the only man who ever actually said and believed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, this world can be a cruel, harsh world, but I can die. I'm willing to die with the world mocking me. I'm willing to die in pain. I'm willing to die alone. I'm willing to die penniless. I'm willing to die in apparent embarrassment and failure because if I have you, if I have your will, then I have everything that I need. And the gospel of Jesus is that that man loved you enough to be executed in your place for your idols, but he also executed your idols at the cross. He not only nailed your sins to the cross, he nailed those idols to the cross so that they can't hurt you anymore. They can still tempt you, and they will, in fact, trick you sometimes successfully, but they can't cause any lasting harm upon you. Though we have cheated on the true God with cheap gods, he has not given up on us, he has not divorced us, he has forgiven us, he has nailed us to himself, and he welcomes us back home. Here's my favorite part in the Ten Commandments. My absolute favorite part, I held out on reading it up until this point, even though I probably should have read it already. It's verse 2. It's the verse right before you get the first commandment. Before God even gives a command, you know what he says? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What does this mean? This is the gospel of the Ten Commandments. You know what it means? God did not deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt by saying, All right, I'm going to take you to Mount Sinai. I'm going to give you 10 commandments. And if you keep those things okay, if you prove that you can obey me, then I will accept and bless you. Then I will rescue you. Then I will deliver you from your enemies. He does not take them to Sinai and then take them to Red Sea to wash away all their enemies. Where does he take them? He takes them first through the Red Sea, washes away their enemies, and then he takes them to Mount Sinai and says, and here's how you live a godly life. See, the rescue, the salvation, it's completely unearned. It's completely undeserved. It's completely unconditional. God doesn't save us because we're good. God saves us because he's good. And then he teaches us what a prosperous and godly life looks like. The more we see the unconditional, undeserved love of God, the more we want him as the only master of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you alone are our God. I always think when we talk about idolatry, there are individuals in the room that have never identified and never repented of one of their idols. They think it's such a distant thing that isn't part of them and it's actually the controlling force in their life right now. So I'm asking you to help us identify and repent of our idols, to help us understand ourselves better, to help us understand your goodness better. Let our hearts be melted by your grace so that we want to serve you as our God. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.